The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. Welcome to The Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I am your host, Bobby Williams. Now, today I am excited. I am excited because the Strengthening Families Conference is coming up on November 3rd. This is a virtual conference for parents, professionals that work with youth, really anyone who is interested in the health and well-being of children. This is a chance to learn from many amazing speakers and get some tools for your toolkit. You can register for this conference now by going to familyess.org. You'll also be hearing from amazing people like today's guest, Anna Hamayun. Anna is a academic advisor and early career expert. A lot of her work is focused on helping young people develop practical solutions to promote purposeful learning. We're talking about making routines, controlling your impulses, uh, healthy social relationships, and a whole lot more. Anna is also the author of Erasing the Finish Line. This is an incredible book. You can pick it up wherever you get books from or go to erasingthefinishline.com. I related to a lot of what we talked about in this conversation. Check it out. And so that's one of the things I've worked on for the last 20 years with students. This idea of how do we help students develop executive functioning skills, particularly in middle school, high school, and college. And what I found in my work with students is that the more that we provide time, structure, and support to develop these skills in middle school and high school, the more it really benefits students in, as they move through college and beyond. And so my goal is to help parents and families understand what are the things that they can do at home to really help students feel a sense of agency, that they can develop these skills and that they're competent to develop these skills. My whole life, I was always told, like, build a system, build a system. And it's like, oh, okay, well, what is a system? So I guess what is a system? Well, it really depends for each person. So let's, you know, one of the stories in the book, I talk about Henry and Henry was actually in my first book that crumpled paper was due last week. He had recently been, been diagnosed with ADHD. He came into my office, you know, 15 years ago. And we worked with him to figure out, you know, how does he manage his physical materials? And then over time, how does he manage his digital materials? And then what's a checklist that helps him get back on track? Because he knows that he needs regular touch points throughout the day. There are things that help keep him accountable. And the reality of mo what most people with ADHD will readily admit and tell you is that there, even with all the best laid plans, there are some days or some weeks that everything goes, you know, you need to get back on track. And so part of what we also do is help, okay, understand that there's no shame and no blame in that. And what are the like checklists of things that you can start to do or get somebody to help you with to get you back on track. And by help you, I mean, 
have an accountability buddy. So when I think about systems, I think about organizing, planning, prioritizing, starting and completing tasks, and being adaptable when something doesn't go as planned. And then what are the facets that go into that for each person, depending on what they're doing, if they're in school, if they're working in a job, um, and then what their daily life looks like. I appreciated your ideas about sleep and taking breaks too, because it's just easy to get burnout sometimes. Yeah, for many people, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book, there's four pillars in the book. Um, and the fourth one is around acceptance. And one of the things I talk about is this idea of energy profiles that we don't really think about how much, you know, what energizes us, what drains us and what we need to do to recharge. And that's different for every person. Every person's unique profile means that there are different ways that they get energized, drained and need to recharge. And that's particularly um, important for students with neurodiversity, right? Like a lot of times when you feel this sense of overwhelm, it's because your energy is depleted. And in my work in schools, one of the things I talk about is how do we help people create spaces of silence throughout the day? So kind of like your idea of sleep and rest, you know, if we can create spaces of silence in, an, in a school day, that kid may feel less overwhelmed or exhausted at the end of it so that when they get home, if they have tasks to do, it won't feel like they have to just like really take some time off because just the stimulation of the day has been so overwhelming. Yeah, it's like once you're done or you're just fried for the day, it's hard to get much else done. I think, too, mm -hmm. there's always like this element of shame sometimes or you look at your grade point average and it's like, oh, it's just it's not what I want it to be. But you talk about focusing more on healthy habits as opposed to just the the GPA. Can you explain that idea a little more? Sure. So my focus has always been if you focus on the habits and those underlying skills and daily routines, the grades will come and they'll be probably better than you ever expected. And this takes time. And this is very hard for people. This is like teaching parents and families a new language. But what we've done is in focusing on these grades and test scores, it's short-sighted because we don't really focus on the underlying skills that all kids need to develop. So if they're struggling with content, learning how to learn and how they learn best is important. So back to that example with Henry, what he says that he learned is if when he first came into my office, he had a 2.7 GPA. And he said, if I had just asked him what his grade goal was, he would have said a 3.0, like a B average, and he would have been thrilled. But then he would have just stopped because he would say, I made my goal. But because I always focused on the habits, I always was like, so let's talk about your organization, your managing distractions, doing work without feeling overwhelmed starting and completing tasks proactively. Let's, we always did, and I would ask him always, are you doing the best you can with what you've got? And he would say, well, you know, I think I could work on this a little bit. So over the course of two years that we worked together, he went from a 2.7 to a 3.7 GPA in high school. And then when he went to college, he took this understanding that he really had confidence in his ability to manage how to learn and manage his own processes day to day. Now he's in his early 30s. And he says that the same things he learned in my office are things that he uses in his job today on how he organizes plans, prioritizes, finishes projects, but also most importantly, feels comfortable 
learning how to learn when there's something new and demanding. So it's happened when he started a new job or there's a new product that he's had to learn. So that this idea of learning how to learn is really key. I think that's a really interesting point that it's you need to understand and know how to do these things when you're young because it's going to impact your life as an adult. I mean, what happens if you don't learn these things? Here's the thing. A lot of times what we ask of middle school students is not where they are in terms of brain development. So we're asking them to juggle all these tasks and they're just not there yet. And the brain science supports this idea, right? And also stress and overwhelm really impacts the the development of executive functioning skills. So we have many students who've just navigated the pandemic and feel overwhelmed, right? And then they're now going to a piece where um, they're trying to learn these skills and it might be tougher. And if they don't learn the skills, what ends up happening is this feeling of comp- their confidence depletes, right? Because if you have feel overwhelmed and you have all this missing homework and you don't have a system for getting back on track and you just feel like you start to lose your sense of um, worth and your sense of ability to get things done or have agency and autonomy. And as that confidence wanes, it impacts every aspect of your life and the la- the life of your family, because you have a fear of maybe trying it or getting a system in place that it might not work. Um, so you're less open and curious. You're more likely to just shut down. And then that leads you to all these other things that happen in life that leads you less available to the opportunities that might support you, whether that's people, whether that's experiences, whether that's things. So we really want students to start to think of this early as a way to build their emotional and um, academic toolkit to feel confident so that they can, you know, really spread their wings. Well, and sometimes maybe it's easier to not try. Like if you have this self-image of like, okay, I'm dumb, not trying may feel better than trying and it not working. So that self-esteem seems like such an important factor. Inhibitory control, inhibitory control. Um, What is it? Why is it important for relationships? Yeah. So inhibitory control, we often think of in terms of um, impulse control. So we think of it in terms of managing distractions, getting work done. But what I talk about in the book is actually how it relates to connection and belonging. So an example I give is I work with a lot of K through eight schools, so kindergarten through eighth grade. And inevitably, if a child does not have good inhibitory control from a very early age, like kindergarten, first grade, and they're blurting things out and they're yelling or they have feel emotionally dysregulated, What ends up happening even in fourth grade is like a parent will call and say, you know, I don't want my kid in in class with that kid because in kindergarten, this thing happened. And so that that child is labeled and not able to make the connections in the same way. And this concept, it really affects how they experience school, how they feel connected to their classmates and how they feel engaged in the classroom is that this idea of inhibitory control and that the connection to feeling connected and making connections and having friendships is something we overlook. And that's something important that I talk about in the book. Yeah. Well, how do you teach this then? Like it's one thing to say, control yourself, but how do you go from that to actually the idea of being executed? Yeah. I mean, it takes time. So it's not like a one-stop quick, quick fix shop, but one of the things that parents can start to do is really think about how they're 
children have face-to-face -face conversations, right? How, how do they introduce themselves? How do they maintain a conversation? And then how do they develop small talk skills? So that's something that we really haven't fully valued in our culture is that that ability to make um, quick conversations with people across differences. So different backgrounds, feeling different and different backgrounds could be a different age. So one thing parents can do is if you have a family gathering where there are people of all different generations is having your child go up to different people and start a conversation. You know, that's a low stakes way to do that. For teenagers, having a job that works with the general public gives them, again, that repeated interaction. One of the things that's happened with so much technology use is that so many of our initial interactions are online. You don't pick up the phone to make an appointment anymore or, you know, order pizza or all these things that would have been incremental practice ways to practice small talk skills, right? So thinking about what are the ways that we can build that. And then the second thing to, that parents can really do is also to help th their kids define what a good friend is to them, what values are important to them, and then have them reflect on whether or not they embody those values as well, because that's a great way to start thinking about making and maintaining friendships. There is some formula to socialization too, or like ask a question and so it makes sense that it is something you can teach. You mentioned social media and you have the three S's that are important. What are those three S's? Sure. Um, so when I wrote Social Media Wellness, my previous book, I really realized that we needed a framework that regardless of what social media kids were using, they could start to reflect on whether or not they wanted to spend their time and what was what was useful for them. So the three S's are healthy socialization, effective self-regulation and overall safety. So healthy socialization is this idea of figure out your why. Why are you reaching for your phone? Why are you posting? Why are you engaging in certain apps? Uh, effective self-regulation are what are the ways that you put in place for yourself, regardless of what other people, you know, your parents or caregivers or, or, or other teachers might be saying, what are you putting in place for yourself so that when you are doing your work, you're actually doing your work. And then when you have free time, you're actually experiencing free time. And then overall safety, you know, I, I talked about in the book how, you know, the first generation of digital citizenship really focused on physical safety, like don't get into somebody's car, don't meet somebody in person. But a lot of that's changed in our world. And so really, we need to focus on social, emotional and physical safety. So if you're being bombarded with messages or somebody has posted something online that feels uncomfortable or unsafe, do you have trusted adults that you can turn to? and that you wouldn't feel a shame or blame mentality. And so for some kids that could be their parents, but as kids get older, it's really important that they have multiple trusted adults outside of their immediate family, as well as in their immediate family, because it may not be possible in their immediate family that they can reach out to if something doesn't go as planned or feels uncomfortable online or in real life. Yeah, it's not always your parents that you wanna to go to when it's, something uncomfortable. Those other outside adults are so important. You talked about totally. mentors and sponsors. What's the difference between the two? Yeah. So it's a really important part of the book is around this idea of sponsorships and mentorship. So mentorship is really, you know, tutors or college counselors, people who provide support and give guidance. And that is so we all need great mentors in our lives. 
But one of the things I argue, particularly for students who will benefit from social and economic mobility, is that they also need sponsors. We all need sponsors, like to be clear, but particularly students who may be experiencing, you know, different needs. This idea about sponsorship is important. And sponsor means a sponsor is somebody who is able to support you in a way that leads to your economic benefit. Now, economic benefit means getting a job, maybe going to school and finding a scholarship or a way to pay for it, you know, maybe finding an internship that leads to a career. And they really, you know, the difference between mentors and sponsors is sponsors can go that extra step of making the connection and making things start to happen. So um, whereas a mentor just might provide guidance in the here and now, but doesn't go that extra step. And I think we often confuse and think they're one and the same, and they're really not. Um, and if we really care about supporting student well-being in terms of economic well-being, financial stability, building up their skills, getting jobs, we have to focus on sponsorship as well. I could hear young people responding to that saying like, well, I don't know anyone that can help me career-wise like that. Like, how do I even find those people? Well, one of the things I found, and I, I talked about this in the book, is that if I was to identify people and say, well, that person's going to be my mentor and that person's going to be my sponsor, it absolutely didn't work out that way for me and for many students. And so it's not one of those things where you necessarily, you know, I pinpoint people. It might work sometimes, but more of it is around being open and curious. You know, one of the stories that I give in the book was the story of Philip and Philip, you know, he, he was very open and curious. So he had a number of people that offered to help him that he, he met along the way. Like when he was interviewed for college, that woman inter, inter, um, invited him to a conference in Boston he, to volunteer. And he's like, sure. And then, then through that, he met different people. So it's like also this idea of, are you open and curious and are you receptive to having a mentor or sponsor? Because it's a two-way street. Like a lot of people are like, well, I, I should be assigned a mentor. Or I should be assigned a sponsor. It doesn't work like that in real life. Like there are maybe instances or programs where that might work, but long-term in real life, you know, it is a give and take, you know, and you have to, it's kind of a dance of figuring out who would be a good fit, who also feels like they want to be of support to you as well. Going back to the social side of things, I think we're alike in a way and that I've always had, you know, a few friends here, a few friends there, but I've never in my life had like, okay, this is the click. We're all getting together and my friend group all knows each other. And I think sometimes for young people, they feel like, oh, if I don't have a click, then I'm not, something's wrong with me or something, but it's okay, right? Absolutely. If there's one message that I want young people to get from this book, it's that Feeling connected in multiple different spaces is really important. And how and where and when that happens is different for every person. And so some people may find their connections at school and some people might not. And feeling like there's volunteer places or there is maybe a job or there is a family friend group or something like that or a spiritual group um, that may be that place where you find connection. Um, but you bring up a really important point. I was just at a middle school yesterday and I was talking to fifth through eighth graders and they were really interested in that piece 
because there are so many kids who feel like less than if they don't have this defined group. But we know the research shows that actually being a floater, being able to connect with different people across different groups, across differences, is actually in life one of the best skills that we can have. And so I want to support that because we we often don't support that in the younger grades, but I want people to think about, okay, how can I build my small talk skills? How can I feel comfortable in conversation with many different people? And how can I feel okay just with where the multiple places I feel a sense of belonging, regardless of where those are? There's so much we could talk about. The book goes into so much. And I just, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Can you leave us with uh, the pillars of success? Sure. So the four pillars are um, systems. So that's around developing executive functioning skills. And the whole idea there is being organized decreases stress. The second is around connection and really figuring out how can we support students in building a sense of introductions to others as well as small talk skills. Perspective is around expanding that narrow definition of what success looks like and feeling comfortable with multiple different spaces of feeling, um, being open and curious to learn about different places, spaces, experiences. And finally, acceptance. And so we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, this idea of being accepting of yourself and others, understanding what your energy profile is, what are the things that are important to you, and sort of blocking out the noise of comparison culture by really accepting who you are. And those four pillars really combine to this idea of how we help every student develop their own blueprint in erasing the finish line. Erasing the finish line. Anna, thank you for taking the time to talk with me here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you, Anna Hamayoon. Erasing the finish line, erasingthefinishline.com. Be sure to get your copy. And don't forget Strengthening Families Conference coming up November 3rd. Register today, familyess.org. Get your tickets. I'm Bobby Williams. This has been the Parental Compass. We'll see you next time. Peace.